Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, at this point, I would like to hand the stage over to Peter from Eastside Freedom Library, who is going to be starting us off for today's event. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to welcome you on behalf of the Eastside Freedom Library uh, and emphasize how pleased we are to have an ongoing collaboration with the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizens League, and that this has included the gift of their library to the Eastside Freedom Library. We're honored to be taking care of the books that they've collected and organized over many years. And we want to invite you to come and visit and use those books. Uh, we also want to invite you to join our mailing list. Uh, go to uh, our website, eastsidefreedomlibrary.org uh, and click on get involved and you can sign up for our mailing list. Um, we're delighted to be working uh, with Vinny and other members of the Twin Cities Japanese American Citizens League, and also delighted to welcome Frank Abe uh, to our virtual space. And we look forward to the movie, the conversation, and we're inspired by how many people have already uh, shown up. So thank you all very much. We look forward to a great program. Thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Peter. And thank you to the Eastside Freedom Library for helping with the technical side of this event and everyone on the Twin Cities JCL Education Committee for pulling the whole event together. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Vinny Taguchi. I'm the new chapter president for the Twin Cities JCL and it's my pleasure to be uh, hosting this event here today. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the Japanese American Day of Remembrance is commemorated on February 19th of each year. Uh, February 19th, 2021 marks the 79th anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066, which paved the way for Japanese or Americans of Japanese ethnicity, many of whom were already U.S. citizens, to be categorically discriminated against and locked in American concentration camps during World War II. 2021 also marks the 40th anniversary of the public hearings of the survivors that eventually led to the signing of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which included an official apology on behalf of the US government and monetary compensation to those survivors who were then still living. Now, 34 years later, we see that the Japanese American remains, or Japanese American story remains somewhat unique in American history. Uh, Japanese Latin Americans who also experienced the incarceration still have not received their justice. Native Americans who have been discriminated against in many ways have, still have not received their justice. Black Americans still have not received their justice. Yet in many ways, we also see the, how the Japanese American story is not unique. Uh, there are troubling parallels that exist between the wartime hysteria that occurred during World War II and led to the arrest of 120,000 Japanese Americans uh, with the Islamophobia, xenophobia, and white supremacy that we see today. So in today's program and in viewing the powerful documentary that we're going to see, uh, I, I hope you'll uh, keep these themes in mind and especially for the panel discussion that follows. So at this point, I'd like to introduce Frank Abe, the writer, producer, and director of the documentary to introduce his film. Thanks, Vinny, and thanks everyone for joining us on this afternoon, snowy in some places I hear. 
Uh, I'm, I'm in Seattle now speaking to you, uh, but I'm really a child of the Midwest. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, 1951. Uh, my father got out of Heart Mountain and we settled there. So uh, it's really a pleasure to be back uh, with you folks today. Um, even though this film, I'll just say a few words, even though this film came out in 2000, you're gonna see a story of camp that still is not very well known today. At the time it was made, the subject of resistance to incarceration was kind of a taboo subject in the Japanese American community, as you'll see. Um, and um, well, especially in Minnesota, you have a very strong presence of the MIS school at Camp Savage and Fort Snelling. Um, 20 years ago, you know, there were, there was kind of a party line in our community that we really had like two responses to incarceration, uh, two phrases that were used. Uh, one was shikata ganai, which is uh, Japanese for it can't be helped, passive resignation in the face of injustice. Uh, the other was go for broke, which is, you know, uh, Hawaiian pigeon, a gambler's term for go all out, give 200%. And, and again, those are the two responses that uh, were acceptable in our community for talking about the injustice never rang true for me. Uh, and so I always felt there was a third thing somewhere in between. And what you'll see for the next 56 minutes is my search for that, that third thing, which is resistance to incarceration, resistance to, to a government authority, and also community pressure to conform to the party line. So I wanna thank Twin Cities JACL for sponsoring this event. I wanna say that the JACL today is not the JACL of 1942. And you'll see a postscript at the end of the film, uh, which explains why. So thank you very much. I'll see you in one hour. All right, thank you, Frank. So at this point, I'm going to begin sharing the film. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Frank, for, for sharing such a powerful film with all of us. Um, would you like to say a few words now? Uh, just two things, Vinny. Thanks uh, uh, for watching, everyone. Uh, I'm always worried when I watch with a new audience, you know, will it still hold up? But uh, unfortunately, every time I watch it, you know, there's always a new context, a new uh, reality we face in the U.S., you know, at this moment. So we'll, I'm sure we'll come to discuss that. Just, just two points I wanna make. Uh, uh, younger viewers, uh, younger members of JCL, Twin Cities JCL, thank you for sponsoring this. Uh, and you saw this, this is your legacy of the JCL of the wartime. Again, JCL today is not the JCL 1942. You saw the apology, uh, which they made after we finished production of the film. Uh, the second point is the, a point later in, in the second half about the resettlement. Uh, when the WRA re released or resettled incarcerees in the camps when they closed in 1944-45. Um, the, the pre your, your presence in the Twin Cities it, and my birth in Cleveland, Ohio is very much, oh, thank you for your comments, by the way. I see the comments there. Uh, your presence in, in the Midwest and my birth there in, in Cleveland is a result, a direct result of the war relocation authority, government policy, to not resettle us back in our homes in the West Coast uh, uh, and to uh, assimilate us, to spread us out you know, across the East and Midwest. So you have a Twin Cities JCL today. Um, part of that was policy, part of it was choice also. Uh, remember that um, World War II, the war with Japan was still being fought when many families were being released. And so some families did not wanna go back to the West Coast because of reports of vigilante action 
uh, farms in Fresno being shot into by vigilantes uh, when the Japanese returned you know, to the West Coast. And there were um, anti-Japanese leagues that formed here in Bellevue, Washington in Seattle against the return of Japanese Americans from the camps. So, so it was by choice that many did go uh, to New York City, Chicago and Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, so with that, Benny, I'll turn it back to you and I'll look forward to your questions. Thank you, Frank, and thank you for your comments. Uh, one thing that uh, struck me with this film is how, you know, we think about the present as a time where America is very divided. Communities are divided on a number of different topics. And as we can see, even what in hindsight seems to us a very black and white issue of, oh, the whole community was incarcerated. They should clearly all feel the same way about the injustice. Even then we see that it was a very divisive time. People had different opinions about what was the right thing to do. And I, I actually had the privilege to be at the last in-person JCL National Convention in 2019 uh, when we voted to uh, a second part to the apology to the Tule Lake uh, no-no boys, the, the people who answered or answered no or qualified the loyalty questionnaire. Uh, which was, a, again, a, a further way of JCL uh, rectifying its past mistakes, although even now that was still a, a very contentious vote. Uh, so It was I, a struggle, I, I'm sure, uh, in, at the convention. Um, the, many argued, so well, there were, uh, my uncle who wanted to volunteer for the army was beaten up by these no-nos uh, for wanting to be uh, patriotic and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, so the, these, these grudges still exist. And I want to um, say that it was the government, you know, that, that we need to look at, the, it was the government's actions that divided us in camp and created these divisions that linger, as you saw at that at the JCL convention. So um, I'll put in a mention that I have a new graphic novel coming out next month called, uh, We Hereby Refuse, Japanese American Resistance to Wartime Incarceration. Uh, and we, we Hereby Refuse being, of course, the tagline of the Fair Play Committee you just saw. Um, and it will go further into pinning accountability and responsibility for all that happened, not on the victims, not on the targets, but on the, those who perpetrated them, which is the US government. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to reading that graphic novel. Um, at this point, I would like to invite Jelani Hussein, uh, the executive director of CARE Minnesota, the Council on American Islamic Relations, uh, to join us. Uh, Jelani, if you're on. I see that he's with us on the call. Hopefully he's able to turn his camera and microphone on soon. I believe Jelani is actually joining us from outside of the country. He had to attend to a family emergency, but he still wanted to participate in the event. To answer your Anne's question about, can you hear the songs they sung in, the, in prison? Um, yeah, on the DVD, there's a second disc of extras and the actor Mako, Mako sings those songs for us. And uh, they're on the DVD there. And he tells the story of how uh, we found a scrap of paper in one resistor's wallet, the Song of Cheyenne that was written in Katakana. Uh, and uh, we got the words from the, the Song of Cheyenne composed by the guys in jail. And, and Mako recognized the, the meter in that poem uh, as uh, a Hawaiian plantation work song, the Hora Hora Bushi. So, so Mako 
put that the words of this poem to the Hore Horebushi and sings it uh, in the film for us. I'll, I'll send you a link to the um, webpage showing at least the poem. Excellent, thank you. And there are also some requests of how to get the DVD. So uh, if you're able to share that information. Too. Sure. Thank you. So um, Jelani, uh, whenever you're ready, if you can please join us. Uh, otherwise, in the meantime, I would like to invite our other panelists, uh, Haruka Yukioka and Ismahan Ali. And we can begin the, the conversation on how we each relate to this story uh, from our own perspectives and experiences. And Jelani, uh, you're welcome to join the discussion as soon as you're able to. So yeah, if um, I don't know, would you each like to introduce yourself quickly? Sure. Um, <laughs> do you wanna, okay. Uh, my name is Haruka, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. I am a Shin Nisei, which for folks who are not familiar with that term means that my parents immigrated to the United States after the Immigration Act of 1965. Um, I'm a student at the University of Minnesota studying music education, Asian American studies, and racial justice in urban schooling. Um, and I serve as the 2020-2021 external vice president of the Asian American Student Union um, at the University of Minnesota. Uh, I'm also a member of the JACL, but I'm here on behalf of ASU today. Um, and I have the great pleasure of working with uh, Ismahan Ali from El Medina Cultural Center. Um, and so please introduce yourself. Thank you for the introduction, Haruka. Um, hi everyone, my name is Ismahan. I am a senior here at the University of Minnesota. I'm also part of the El Medina Cultural Center as Haruka mentioned, um, which is a student group on campus that seeks to kind of unite, unify the different cultures of Islam. Um, and so I just wanna kind of give a quick thank you to you guys for um, reaching out to us and asking us to kind of share the spotlight on your day of remembrance. Um, it's an honor to be here. And I see Jaylani here has joined the call so he can <laughs> introduce himself. Yes, excellent timing. Yes, uh, thank, thank you for, for, for having this program and, and uh, for inviting us um, to be part of it. Um, this is Jaylani Hussain, the Executive Director of uh, CARE Minnesota. I'm really glad to be part of this program, um, part of supporting the uh, uh, Japanese American citizen. Thank you all for being here today. Yeah. So as as I mentioned in the introduction, even though this is, you know, this history has has aged a little bit, uh, we still see that its its relevance has not gone away today. And I, I wonder if each of you could uh, reflect on that, the, the legacy that you see of this history, either in your personal experience, in your community experience, or, or however else, uh, the, this history of the, of the incarceration by the government uh, you see in your lives today. You can go in any order that you feel comfortable with. Should I take, should I pick names? Well, Jaylani, you joined us last. Uh, why don't you go first? Um, yeah, no, I, I, um, it, I think, it, you know, just watching the documentary, I think um, uh, it seems that um, we, we, we have to really understand history because um, unfortunately we are doomed to repeat it if we don't. 
Um, you know, I think just looking back um, just most recently uh, with the Trump administration, but just even before that, um, and, and specifically uh, the policy enacted after uh, September 11 that impacted Muslims, particularly and other minorities, uh, really have has drawn similar parallels of, of history toward uh, creating similar policies. I know the Muslim community has faced a lot of this um, and um, particularly around, uh, you know, the, the continued pressure to constantly uh, uh, condemn violence uh, committed by individuals um, and, you know, and to also, you know, create this kind of uh, process of, you know, trying to prove our Americanism and our ability to um, to, to uh, fight against evil to some extent. Um, and you can kind of see much of that kind of culminating to um, the first um, year of uh, President Trump uh, when he ran for office. Uh, one of the things he ran for was uh, to stop Muslims from coming into the United States, um, a policy that clearly was religious uh, profiling and, and uh, contrary to our United States Constitution uh, establishment clause. Um, and then it, made, it was a policy for the entire four years of this president uh, to deny Muslims from certain companies from uh, countries from coming into the United States, um, which sadly the, the United States Supreme Court sided with President Trump um, on that policy. Again, the same policy focusing on uh, uh, security as a way to undermine our constitution. Um, and there are so many people who, who um, even within the Muslim community, who are willing to accept some of these, you know, uh, policies that contrary to the United States constitution. Um, and we saw, you know, not only how important it was to reverse this with uh, now President Biden, reversing this order within the hours of becoming a president, uh, but again, to show that um, you know, this can happen and this can continue to happen unless we uh, do something about it. Um, and the division that it also caused within the Muslim community, those who supported policies like the countering violence extremism, which kind of came out of the same mindset uh, that the entire community was somehow a suspect community uh, and not actually going after credible um, uh, threat. Um, and uh, the constant engagement that Muslims have to con always condemn. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, just the two things, the, 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 how it impacted the community, how it kind of forced the division within the community, but also just how the entire constitution was stampled across. Um, and, uh, and it did not, uh, you know, it was suspended from, from our community uh, while other people clearly saw that it was problematic, um, but but unfortunately, uh, many people did not. Um, and um, also, similar policies uh, under President Obama's administration, which again, majority Democrats did not see as problematic. One of the things I remember, uh, even after President um, Obama left, was hearing Hillary Clinton running on campaign, talking about uh, we have to really work with Muslims because if we if we don't, uh, you know, somehow we know, you know, who the terrorists are to some extent. So, and that's the kind of language that eventually developed 
the pathway for Trump to announce uh, such a horrific policy, then enact on it, and then the Supreme Court decide with it. Um, now, obviously, that policy is over with, uh, but the impact that it, it had on our community is still there. There are many people who took money to, to try to plan and develop those programs like countering violence extremism. Uh, as soon as President Trump was uh, elected, many of them stopped, uh, but they were planning to do those policies under the Obama administration. So a lot of similarities um, and a lot of the same practices, the same type of excuses that were used, the same type of thinking about proving ourselves to be more American than we are, uh, you know, some sort of a test that we have to go through. So um, it's sad, but I think it's a reality that we have to really constantly be aware of history uh, and really fight to, um, to not let it um, repeat. Thank you, Jelani. Uh, would anyone else like to reflect or respond to that? And by the way, uh, I, I, this can be a very natural, organic conversation. Please feel free to respond to each other and ask each other questions. I'm here to kind of keep things going and asking questions and pose audience questions. But if I don't say anything else for the rest of the program, that's also an excellent conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly uh, piggyback off what Jelani said, and another thing that I noticed in the film itself, um, me personally, I'm Somali-American, so I'm second-generation Somali-American. Uh, my parents were born outside of the country in Somalia, and so one thing I noticed in the film itself is that the second-generation Japanese-Americans were much more willing to fight against, you know, their constitutional rights being taken away, whereas, like, their parents were much more, you know, keep quiet, keep, you know, stay low, and kind of assimilate, basically, and kind of take whatever is given to you, essentially. Um, and so that's kind of one thing that I realized, especially with Muslim Americans of today as well. Um, you know, you see these kids at the rallies is usually second generation kids or third generation kids that are at these rallies that are protesting for our rights. And the parents are usually the ones that are um, often kind of against it. And they're telling them to kind of keep quiet and make sure you don't stir the pot. So that's one thing, uh, one parallel that I wanted to make the two different <laughs> populations. I would say too, Jelani, um, what you said resonated with me because we think about the ways that different populations are demonized, right? So at this point in time, it was Japanese Americans. And then we trace throughout history, right? Like we think about the demonization of folks who are immigrating or fleeing South America. We think about um, the hatred that was directed towards Hmong refugees and Vietnamese refugees after those wars. And we think about the demonization of Muslim folks, especially those who come from predominantly Muslim countries, which also tend to be countries that are predominantly black and brown people, right? And so it's not just Islamophobia, it's also xenophobia, it's also racism, it's also white supremacy. And all of these different isms combine to create um, an environment where things like the Muslim ban are accepted, things like internment camps are accepted. Um, and so I think it's really important to not look at these things as isolated events, right, which is like the, the event that we're having right now is pushing against that because white supremacy will always find a new group of people to victimize, right? Like this is, you know, it's not, it's not about just one group. It's not like Japanese Americans at this time were uniquely bad. They were just a convenient scapegoat for white supremacy and the white supremacist, supremacist actions of the United States government. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind that the enemy here right, is white supremacy. It's never a specific, it, it doesn't have a, uh, you know, it doesn't have a specific face. It doesn't have a specific name. It's the structure that 
continues to hurt people and hurt groups of people and to undo you know victimization towards one group means standing in solidarity and undoing victimization of all of us or or we'll never reach true liberation and we'll never reach true freedom that's a good point haruka one thing we couldn't do in the film uh was fully explain the background of anti-asian uh legislation uh before the, before the war, the history of exclusion, uh, Asian Exclusion Act, Japanese Exclusion Act, and the Native Sons of the Golden West, and the economic uh, aspect of wanting to take the land of the Japanese farmers. Uh, and so you have the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor being a trigger or an inciting incident that kind of unleashes all of this pent-up hostility against the Japanese in America. Uh, and but it the, so the eviction and incarceration couldn't really have happened without the background of all that um, hostility. And Ismahan, the point you made about the parents, uh, one distinction is that the uh, Japanese immigrants in 1920s, 1930s, and 1940 were, because of the Japanese Exclusion Act, they were banned or barred from naturalized U.S. citizenship. So whereas immigrants, you know, today are Although the, you know, the, the process is all backed up and clogged, but you know, the, the, the Japanese immigrants, the Issei, could not become naturalized U.S. citizens. That didn't happen until you know, the early 1950s. So that, that was why it, it, only the Nisei could speak up as American citizens, because they had uh, naturalized birthright citizenship. Uh, the parents did not. I think those are those are really good points, uh, Frank, and and uh, um, and and you know just the similarities, particularly around security um, and war, uh, almost um, is the slippery slope for excuse for suspending the constitution or or not applying the constitution. Um, I think that's a big big part of that. Um, that idea of uh, what Haruku was mentioning about, you know, who is an American, right? Who, who, who is um, uh, more loyal to America? Um, and uh, this is something that has been pinned against immigrants, even when they become uh, citizens and their children. It's a sense of like almost denial of their heritage of where their parents came from. You know, you celebrate um, uh, Irish uh, Americans with, with, without a question or Italian American. Now I'm not saying that there were not challenges, but when it comes to, you know, uh, the Germans to some extent through German Americans and, uh, right. You, you're here, you are at World War II where German Americans are a central core a focus point of, of, of the war. And, and, um, and, and Japanese Americans are, are, uh, the ones treated uh, because of, again, this, this element of uh, this whiteness that has played historically uh, very well um, in, in a struggle. Um, and anyone who's not white in the United States doesn't get asked a question about their, uh, their, their loyalty. I mean, think about um, President Trump's wife, Melania, who abused the visa process to come into the United States um, right. And but at the same time, no one, even during this time, when we talk about immigration in the United States or immigrants, mm -hmm. the, the, Melania doesn't come into the picture. No. It's it's Latinos that come into the picture. It's it's people who are 
um, uh, you know, minority that come into the picture, not recognizing how many white people who come into this country who are immigrants of uh, one form or the other. Um, and again, and that still is there, right? And, and we're very fragile as a society. Um, and I think January 6th is a great example of that. Uh, the, the, the clear difference of treatment uh, when white people become angry and commit heinous acts, you know, um, we're not going right now and creating an internment camps for them uh, or starting to figure out their loyalty and testing their loyalty of, to make sure, you know, anyone who did such thing or someone in it could potentially be, I mean, this, what took place on January 6th was a, a threat to national security, right? They were trying to topple right. over our government, right? right? Uh, this is what was apparently the, the, the untold story of why people needed to be put into internment camps because they're against the United States Constitution, you know, um, all these um, elected politicians who swore into the Bible about protecting the United States Constitution from enemies, foreign or domestic, right? And so, again, I think it's, that's a really good point that Heroku mentioned, and I think that that's an essence of, of, of why a lot of these issues are there and and uh, we can slip in very easily because white people get excused for committing crimes because uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're, there's a pathetic way of responding and seeing and saying well it's not everybody right it's it's logically easy to say it's not everybody but when it comes to minorities they're all guilty one of them is guilty you're going back to world war ii there was a very active german-american boot uh on the east coast i mean you had rallies for hitler you know, that Charles Lindbergh attended, as, as we know, uh, uh, on, on the East Coast. But yet, so, so that you'd had a handful of German Americans and Italian Americans who were arrested and interned uh, in some detention camps. But they, that was, it was for cause. They were, they had acted, they had done something. Uh, and the distinction is on the West Coast, uh, the government rounded up all persons of Japanese ancestry, not for cause, not for actions, uh, and not even not even for thought, but just because of race. And uh, there was no trial and no no hearing. So that that's that's so, you know the, the the complaint of the Japanese uh, Nisei was, well, they're you know they're arresting all the Japanese Americans, but that they're, they're not arresting the American Germans or the American Italians. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, thank you all for this is a great discussion. I, I hope we can keep going uh, as long as possible. Um, I do want to interject one question from the audience that I think we're, we're kind of touching on this topic, but maybe we can speak to it more specifically. Uh, so this question comes from Alec Ozawa, and I'll, I'll just read it in full. Um, in learning about the political and social divides in the JA community around military enlistment, it feels apparent that the white supremacy ideologies had a fundamental role in how people must prove their Americanism. This still feels like a problem to continue being addressed today. So I'm wondering your thoughts on how we can decolonize our communities from this and how we can build solidarity across all communities under the oppression of white supremacy. I'd like to hear from the students on this. Um, I can I can start maybe if Mohammed we could go back and forth. I I would say, I mean to address the first part, it's not just within the Japanese American community that military enlistment became a form of of proving Americanism. And so thinking specifically about indigenous communities, 
some of the reasons that indigenous folks were enlisting was to prove Americanism and for for some tribes it was to get citizenship right and so folks would fight in the war hoping and or expecting that when they got back they and their families would be able to get citizenship and and in some cases right like what that wasn't true that took that took a court battle just like so many so many fights um in marginalized communities in the united states uh have to wage in order to get these basic rights um and so i think that it is it's really difficult to say, you know, like the, these are the steps we're going to take in order to establish solidarity. But I think it starts with recognizing who the enemy is, right? Or like what ideology the enemy is. So often it's easy to point fingers, um, to look at the people who are fighting for the same scraps as your community and say, these people are the reason that we're not getting what we need when really the issue is why are there scraps to begin with right like why are there so few resources to begin with that so many communities are fighting for and so i think it it does start with like understanding the history of injustice because once you understand the history of injustice and look at the communities and the history of resistance to that injustice i feel like people then have something to fight for or they you know like they know what what the battle is for and i think that that is really an important step to establishing solidarity because otherwise I think people don't know why they would want to do that, why they would want to build relationships. Ms. Mahan, what do you think? No, I think your answer was quite spot on actually. Um, and kind of going back to address the first part of the question as well, um, I feel like it kind of goes back to the idea of assimilation that once you come to this country, you're American, you have to adopt any other hyphens that you might have um, and just kind of become a true citizen, I guess. Um, and so in this case, uh, one way we could kind of decolonize our communities from this is to uplift our traditions, our, uplift our languages, our different things that make us the hyphens that we have, Somali-American, Muslim-American, Japanese-American, whatever the case may be. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's kind of the same similar like systems that are in place that oppress these different communities and uphold this, you know, ideology of white supremacy. So, yeah, that's my thoughts. I would say too, it takes accountability. Like it takes willingness to call in folks from your own communities. And it takes a willingness and a love of other communities enough to call them out, right? And it also takes being willing to know when you've messed up, right? And so I think it's really important to have people around you of different identities, people who love you enough to tell you this is harmful, not just to me, but to all of us. Um, and so I know for me, like it's taken a long time to get there, right? Cause it's really easy to take any any criticism or any suggestion of accountability is an attack. But to be able to take that as constructive critique and as an expression, like I've said, of love, I think that is really important when it comes to building solidarity because we will all mess up. We will all make mistakes, especially when it comes to communities that are not our own. And so to be able to take those call outs or to take those call ins and think, this is because someone loves me and this is because someone loves my community enough to tell me when I have done harm. I think like being able to take that is, is a really important step, both to your, you know, building community and to becoming a better person. For Japanese Americans, um, what, 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 what the community is doing now is reaching out to being the friend to others that we didn't have in 1942, uh, where uh, there are groups like the Suru for Solidarity movement that is um, uh, that went to the Dilly Federal Prison in Texas to protest and take a stand against family detentions there. 
you know, I've been on panels here in Seattle with CARE Washington. I'm so glad to meet Jelani at CARE in Minnesota. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we recognize the similarities between our experience and those of both uh, asylum seekers on the southern border and uh, Muslim Americans across the Midwest. So, uh, and with the, with the Muslim travel ban. So um, I'm, I'm very pleased to see both, you know, my generation and especially the, the Yonsei, the fourth generation, uh, uh, taking, taking these stands, uh, even at this moment today in Seattle, uh, Day of Remembrance is our occasion here. Uh, for Day of Remembrance in Seattle, the, um, the Suru movement is, is doing a car caravan from the Puyallup Fairgrounds, our hometown concentration camp, to the GEO group, you know, ICE private prison, the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. So there's, I, I couldn't be there because I'm doing, I committed to this program, uh, but um, they, they are going to the Northwest Detention Center to, you know, make noise and show solidarity with the, the families who are still being held in this geo group private prison. Uh, fortunately, you know, the Biden administration is, is making moves now to reunite families and address the private prison system. Uh, and I, I, you know, our, our community is, is just keeping up that pressure. Point being, decolonization you know, is, is happening as a very conscious, conscious act uh, by progressive Japanese American groups. And to that point, Frank, um, you know, the first part of the question I wanted to uh, to also add to, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the, the story we keep telling Americans about immigration is that white people didn't immigrate here. They just apparently just were here and we showed up, uh, right? right? Uh, this lie we keep telling, because every time we talk about, we need to talk about immigration in America. Apparently it's just a Latino problem and a bunch of brown people who showed up. Right. If you're not Native American or enforced African-American slave, you came to this country and many people are like, well, why don't they just follow the law? Well, yeah, that's what they're doing in the southern part of the country. They're coming in to seek asylum, which is a policy we have for people who are seeking asylum, uh, let alone the economic factors that we have created on the southern border uh, in South America, Central and South America uh, with our treaty, with our treaties. And we won't even get into that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's the policies and the policy for before when we created this strict policies between, I think, the 24 and 1924, 1956, um, before that, you just show up at Ellis Island and no one asked you where you came from. No one vetted you. you, you there was no vetting process. They just want to make sure you weren't bringing any diseases right. and you were in. That was the process. I mean, now immigrants are in refugee camps for seven years getting vetted getting tested every three months before they even come here, right? Um, and again, you know, the, the, the lie that we tell that immigrants are a burden. No, the whole reason our economy grows is because of immigrants. So I think this is the lie that Americans have been telling. And the more we start telling the truth that immigration is an American story that predominantly white people benefited from, then we can start to have a really honest conversation. And to your second point, Frank, you know, I. I I, I'm the executive director of CARE Minnesota, and I would say Muslims have faced a great deal of uncertainty and fear during this past four years. And one of the few organizations, in fact, I think one of the only organizations, I never had to count them out 
um, was the Japanese American Citizen League here in the Twin Cities. And I really appreciate their support. I know it's a small group, but they have been supporting us um, and our relationship with them has been very, very powerful. Um, and it also changed us to propel. And I'm, I'm very honored to, to, to you know, to, um, to be working with them. And we've done some amazing uh, work with them. I'll, I'll just tell one story and I'll stop. You know, we went to St. Cloud, Minnesota. Many people in the Minnesota will know what that city is. And it's a city that has had racial tensions for a very long time uh, against Asian Americans, against Jewish Americans, and now Muslim Americans. And we had an <clears throat> event there. I think Sally's I think, watching us. She might remember. Maybe I'll bring some PS PTS from, from that event. Uh, and Dr. Yoshi, who was, who was part of that. And at that event, it was an event to remember, you know, the historical parallels that we were seeing. And at this crowd, while people were listening to this program, some of these people came, which we were hoping for them to see the parallels. And so this woman in the crowd gets up and gets there and apologizes to Sally Sudo, a survivor, uh, and says, I'm sorry that the United States did this and we should have never done this. And then the same breath looks at me pretty much declares that I'm a terrorist. Um, and this complete was just completely mind boggling, but it shows the reality that people have not learned from history. We've been talking about this for so long, 70 plus years, and yet still people uh, don't realize uh, that we are moving in that direction. So I, I, again, I really appreciate uh, all of you, especially in the last four years, and just thank so much of the work that you've done across this country. Uh, the way you stood up to the Muslim community and many of the minority communities, the way you reminded Americans uh, of that. And I think still Americans still have that model minority tag on, on Japanese Americans or uh, on the Asian culture, right? And, that's, and that is the, the kind of narrative that they want, right? This, this idea that a good American is, or a good immigrant is the one who denies his identity or denies and fights off his identity. Uh, but I think we have a long way to go. And I keep reminding people, January 6th is a day we should, it should be a, a day for a true conversation with white people. We cannot let this day be forgotten and just appear that didn't happen. People went to the Capitol and decided to take over the United States government and stop a duly elected president from being sworn in. I mean, this is mind boggling and it was a horrible day. And it's a day for us to call people out and say, that is what we're fighting. That's not an American. And we need to come together and realize uh, we have a lot of work to do. Thanks, Jaylani. And it's also been our pleasure to uh, work together with CARE. And, and thank you all for always supporting our efforts as well. I think it's an incredible parallel between our stories. And I'm glad that we're able to use them together to support one another. Uh, Frank, I believe you were trying to make a few comments. And then I'm going to bring in another question from the audience. No, bring in the next question. Yes. OK, OK. Uh, so next one that caught my eye here, there, there are a lot of really good questions. I, I hope we're able to get to them all, but unfortunately I know that's not always the case. Um, so one question here touches on a, perhaps a more recent manifestation, uh, um, this of surge in violence against Asian Americans. So the question comes from Sunny Gaman, Gamam, um, and it says, can you discuss the relation between the victimization of people and the current violent crimes against Asian Americans, specifically the role of the government and regular citizens who are enacting this violence and the lack of government intervention? What is this sudden violent trend? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, uh, clearly it was the past administration that promoted anti-Asian uh, 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 demonization, uh, you know, Ch China virus and so on. So we, we, need, we need look no further than that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's just, that's, that, that's what started it. But it's, it builds on, obviously, on a century of anti-Asian uh, demonization. And what, what can the government do about it? I mean, that, that's a trickier problem. It, it's, it's more culture and systemic. It's, it's not, you, you know, hate crime legislation can only do, go so far. What do the students think? I, I feel like I don't have enough, you know, context or cultural knowledge to talk about why it's happening. I, I see that um, one of our panelists is typing out an answer. And so I hope that that, I hope that that helps. But I will say that something I find really worrying is the response to that violence um, has been full of anti-Black and pro-police rhetoric. And I think it's really important to remember that that is not going to save us and that is not going to keep us safe, right? Like, to me, it comes back to what I talked about earlier with the, the fighting over scraps, the turning of marginalized community against marginalized community. And that that breaks my heart. It's really hard to see because, like I said, that's not going to save us. And all I see then is, is pain and hurt. And that is perpetuated over and over again. And now it's not white supremacy doing that. It's us, right? Like we are, we are enacting this violence against each other. We are the tools of white supremacy and we're being used. And I think that that is really important to, to, to keep in mind that us appealing to our oppressors is not going to keep people safe. And I think it's really hard because many of the people being victimized are, are elderly Asian folks, they're immigrants. And so when people see those videos, they see their grandparents, they see their great grandparents, they see people who truly are, are vulnerable and cannot defend themselves. And so I've seen some really inspiring solidarity. There's a group um, where one of the cities where a lot of violence has been taking place, it's a multiracial coalition of younger folks who are offering to walk elderly Asian folks if they don't feel safe going by themselves. Um, and so that's one example, I think, of a way that we can push back against that violence. I think too, like publicizing these along with the message that we cannot respond to this with anti-Black and pro-police rhetoric is also really important in Minnesota, I think, we're, we're lucky to have not seen those super highly publicized acts of like overt violence yet. Um, and so what we can do, I think here is like amplify those messages and share the stories of activists like Yuri Kochiyama, who was someone who was interned um, during World War II and then formed a really strong relationship with Malcolm X and was a really um, like vocal member of black power movements, like looking at examples of, of solidarity and understanding right who the real oppressor is who the real source of this hate is i think is really important if we're going to stop this violence in a way that is conducive to the healing of our communities rather than facilitating further division i'll i'll add to that and i think those are really amazing points and you know for for us what we have noticed is that um the the election of president obama uh, galvanize the hate movement in America in ways we've never seen before. And those eight years when President Obama was in, the organization, and I don't mean just individuals, I'm talking about the, the level of organizing hate that happened in this country, 
um, has reached the levels that many people ignored. In fact, I think uh, the Obama administration turned their backs to what was naturally happening across this country where people who were racially upset about this president used to galvanize that and, and use policies as an effort to, to undermine what was going on. But it was really racism that was building uh, through these movements. And it was manifested in the Trump administration as becoming okay publicly to go after you know, Latinos, to go after Muslims, to go after Asians. Um, and we're seeing the surgence of anti-Semitism to the point of you know, the shootings and the, and the bombings and, and against uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, synagogues and community members. And so, and this is a dangerous conversation we're having right now, and I keep reminding January 6th, but since we've had this incident, all of the attention has been focused on the least threat, which is from these militia groups, where the or actual true threat is coming from individuals, small groups across this country who are perpetuating lies on social media to continue to unheave the, this hate movement in this country, which at any moment can turn on any minorities. Um, and and it, it's a danger combination. And now with COVID, you know, it almost, I feel like accelerated a little bit because now people who are upset about government shutdowns and people wearing masks are now also lynching on to this movement that has been built across the last 12 years. So. Um, it is not those, these boogaloos and white supremacist militias that are the real threat. It's the, it's the secretary sitting next to you that is sharing some fake story that some Russian you know, uh, soldier is putting out that is then you know, turning some other person to start hating. And so, um, and, and, and you're right, Frank, it's not the government. It's not going to be the government only, and it's not going to be policing it. Right. It's going to be real people in this country to have real conversations and to check a lot of Americans who maybe have real pain and real issues to address, but are masking it to hate minorities and to hate other Americans. And that is the kind of discord that is dangerous that we're going to continue to see. And I don't think we're out of the woods yet because 75 people voted for this president, um, Trump, and we were told that many people are not going to vote for him. That did not happen. So we've got a lot of work to do. And I don't see, you know, anti-Asian and anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant and anti-all xenophobia to go away anytime soon. In fact, now they feel even more emboldened. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to, ahead of us. And I just want to be mindful about that. And I think it's a really good point. you. That's well said. So on that topic of, um, and sorry, I cut you off, uh, Ismahan, so you can be the first to speak after I, I make this point, but uh, since we are running near the end of our official time, seven minutes left, um, and you, you were touching on this point, Jelani, of we have a lot of work ahead of us, um, one question submitted by Elaine Koyama is that the Sansei, the third generation Japanese Americans, and the Nisei, the second generation, were striving to fit in. They saw that as their avenue to becoming accepted as Americans. Uh, Elaine is wondering whether the Yonsei, the fourth generation, who are um, Haruka, are you? No, you said you're a Shin Nisei, um, but a lot of people Haruka's age might be considered the fourth generation. Um, is, is it their place now to shake up the politics and to uh, advocate for social justice and fight systemic racism since they are perhaps more 
entrenched in Americanism, there it, it's less of a vulnerable position. Or where where all do you see as the opportunity for us to move forward and and to to do work to combat some of these issues? The answer is yes, <laughs> and we'll help you. I don't want to speak on the Japanese Americans um, itself, but I feel like in kind of what Frank mentioned earlier about how first generation Japanese Americans weren't even allowed to be actual citizens. Um, and so I feel like as the generations keep going on and as our citizenship is more solidified, I guess, of you know other immigrants, it might be, um, it's, I feel like the first, second generation, I guess could be more so um, establishing our roots and kind of assimilating, I guess, whatever. Um, whereas like the third or fourth generation kind of help bring back our hyphens and our other um, things that we have allow us to, I guess, you know, with the question asked, like fight against these systems of power um, and kind of work together as well. I feel like one thing that Haruka mentioned earlier was how um, there, we have a lot of like inter-BIPOC um, generational fighting that we have amongst different BIPOC communities. Um, and so in particular, with like the Black Lives Matter movement as well, we see a lot of um, Asian and other brown communities that are a little bit um, mad at the Black, Black Lives Matter movement and how hyper visible it is. Um, but I feel like it's also a tool of the mass media as well. Like when you hear, you know, BLM, BLM, BLM all the time, and then they silence all these um, hate crimes that are happening against Asian Americans, they feel kind of, you know, I don't know what the word is, but they feel kind of like a chip on the shoulder, like, why are we not in this media as well? Why are we not um, as vocal or, you know, being broadcasted to the media as well? Um, and so one thing I feel like we have to focus on is sharpening our tools to fight against oppression together rather than using the BLM movement or other movements that have been working to step on each other. So, yeah. I would say too, it's not just the Yonsei that are fighting, like, right? Like, it, like we saw in the movie, there were Issei and there were Nisei that were resisting. And um, I think that when the Asian American movement really began, right, in the, in the 1960s, I think, um, it was the Nisei and the Sansei, especially the children of those who were incarcerated that identified the injustice that their parents had gone through and pushed back against that. And so there's always been resistance, right? Like Saudi just said, multi-generational uh, relations and intergenerational trauma have always been factors. Um, and I think that there is something, like Ismahan said, there is a protective factor with citizenship, especially birthright citizenship. So I think it's really important for those of us who do have birthright citizenship to never take that for granted um, and to use that protective factor as a way to insulate ourselves and we take actions that might not be safe for people without citizenship to do, right? And so I think it's all about identifying what privileges or what protective factors you have that will keep you safe and standing up for those who might not have those same privileges, right? Like it's thinking about what can I do that will, you know, that will make sure that someone's saying something, like what can I do to protect my friends? So like, what can I say about legislation that targets undocumented folks that maybe what some of my undocumented friends can't say, right? Like what are the spaces that I can be in that some of my friends can't be in? And so, you know, thinking specifically about white people and white allies, thinking about the people around you, who are the people around you that are only going to listen to you? What are the spaces that only you can enter? And thinking about that call to action um, and like identifying what are the actions that only I can take and then doing them and being aware of the fact that not everyone can do what you can do, um, I think is really important.
Thank you all. Um, yeah, so as we're coming to the end of our official time, uh, I want to thank everyone who joined us here today. Uh, I know that there's still a lot of questions people have. I, I feel that there's a lot of energy on the panel to, to continue talking. So I, I think some of the panel panelists have indicated that they might be able to stick on a few minutes. So maybe we'll keep talking a few minutes longer, but if you have to go, we understand. Uh, this event is being recorded and everything except for the documentary, which is copywritten, will be available in that recording that will be posted online. Um, you can, of course, purchase a copy of the documentary if you like, and Frank has shared that link. Um, if you would like to find out more information about future events or get involved with any of the groups here today in some way, uh, I just, sorry, I sent it to the panelists, but I'm putting here in the chat uh, how you can sign up for our email list or uh, reach out to us directly if you would like to be connected with someone in particular. Um, at this point, I'm going to try something pretty bold. For, we have 79 participants, but I'm going to try to give people the ability to unmute if they would like to join our, our conversation and speak directly to people. Uh, if that becomes too chaotic, I'll just take it away, but we'll, we'll give it a go. So uh, where is that? I'll just say that the documentary is also on Amazon Prime if you wanna watch it there too. Okay, I swear I had just seen this option, but interesting. Perhaps I don't have that option. It looks like it might just be Pamela's. So I, I apologize for the false alarm. You'll have to continue speaking on the on the chat if you'd like to engage with us directly. But yeah, at this point, a free form conversation, I'm no longer moderating. So. Well, I'll, I'll just add, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think that, um, you know, the, the next steps is really important what can we do and you know it's always a challenge we ask our our community members to step up and um to 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 get involved uh in organizations um and i'm really uh, glad we have our young folks here from this from the university of minnesota and um university of minnesota has a very good rich tradition of student groups that have really stepped up and, and doing some amazing work and on, on all fronts and um, but I think as a collective community, this is, this is a critical time and an important time. You know, I, I saw in the past four years really uh, an, an immense amount of intersectional, cultural, uh, different, you know, movements coming together and really bonding together and, um, and responding to the onslaught from the Trump administration um, and an overwhelming swell of, of, of a lot of our allies, particularly in the white community who came out from the interfaith and social justice movements. And, um, and the mission is not done. You know, we, we were responsive to that administration, but we have an opportunity to, to hold all administrations accountable um, to what's going uh, on. And so I encourage everybody to get involved uh, as much as you can and encourage others to do so. This is not a moment to step back. This is a moment to, stay, to take two more steps further. Jelani, I want to ask you, um, uh, I know I saw the article where you said you were pleased that uh, Biden reversed the Muslim travel ban immediately. What, what's, what's next for, the, for, your, for care and your community in particular now? Well, so there's one particular bill that we were very uh, proud about. In fact, I, 
It was the last thing that I did before COVID hit. I was on a plane to Washington, D.C. to welcome the No Ban Act uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And then I, I still remember on my flight, everything got canceled. <laughs> I had to return. Uh, so the No Ban Act was passed on the House of Congress. And now uh, looking forward to, you know, to pass it on the Senate side. And, and hopefully this kind of a ban will uh, uh, stop any future president from using xenophobic and, and religious exclusion as a, as a reasoning for uh, denying immigrants from coming in. So I think that's a wonderful legislation that we could, we should all should be pushing to, to, to become law. Um, and I think in, in, in retrospect, I think, you know, uh, just as we saw in this wonderful documentary and film is we have to learn about what took place because we literally suspended the, the constitution and the Supreme Court sided with this president while he literally said he's gonna deny Muslims from coming into the United States. So uh, while we celebrate right now uh, the Biden victory in the sense that, you know, on the first hour, this was one of the bills that he signed to reject that executive order, uh, we have to make sure that this kind of action does not happen again and protect a future community. So I, I'm, I'm, that's a bill that we have, the No Ban Act. And uh, I'm glad that uh, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar from the state of Minnesota had a big role in, in that effort. Uh, and I think her story is a very powerful story to, uh, to, to project. Um, but at the same time, I, I really think that, you know, Democrats have claimed that they're gonna work on immigration and we have not yet seen uh, any tangible way of, you know, uh, dealing with this issue. We have 20 plus Americans who, who are neighbors, who are doctors and engineers and uh, our brothers and sisters who are undocumented in this country, uh, who are completely uh, here to uphold the, 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 the corporate greed that we live in today, who are completely benefiting from this population without really um, you know, representation is taxation without representation. These people pay taxes. They've been here. They have, their children are United States citizens, right? And, and so I think to, to a shorter extent, you know, we, we've just got to work together and, and be intersectional and, and continue to fight and make sure that this doesn't happen again. I think there's a really famous quote by Malcolm X where he mentioned that if you stick a knife in someone's back nine inches and you pull it out six inches, there's no real progress that was made. If you pull it out all the way, there's still no real progress that was made. And so drawing parallels to the Muslim ban in particular, um, that was kind of like the knife nine inches deep. And so removing it is kind of removing the knife altogether and no real progress has been made. Real progress can be made when this no ban that Jaylani is pushing for is allowing the wound itself to heal. So I think that's another kind of reason why we can't necessarily become complacent because um, the same systems that or the same like legislation that Trump used to push this Muslim ban rhetoric to begin with are the same ones that Biden can use tomorrow to do so. Um, so yeah. Yeah, and, and they did. I mean, the Biden, Biden and Obama used the same logic that was used to intern uh, uh, Japanese Americans was used to create the Countering Violence Extremism Program, right? And it was interesting. I was watching in 2015, a summit in the White House where they were talking about the threat of terrorism. Um, and there was a tiny squiggly line on the bottom of a chart that they were talking about saying, this is the threat that comes from the Muslim community. And the largest threat, this huge line that goes up to the top of the chart 
was white supremacy and white uh, domestic terrorists, there was no conference for them. There was no White House summit to address uh, domestic terrorism. For, and in fact, since September 11, all of the threat and all of the crimes committed and terror have been coming from domestic terrorists, right? And so, um, again, these were Democrats who were talking like this, right? So you're right, you know, we, we haven't made progress. We just stopped something. And I think that's the problem we've had for so long in, in the progressive movement. Uh, progressive movement almost does not sound like they have no progress. And, uh, you know, we have to start talking about what we want. And I'm tired of rant, chanting what we don't want. Right, right. We have to we have to start we have to start right. talking about what we want and what kind of a America we want to build for our children. And, and you know, uh, I love that Dr. King never talked about you know what he didn't want. He really gave us a dream, a dream of what could be. And and we need to get that dream, and we need to get people around that, and and we need to build that and 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 fight for that. Uh, rather than, you know, always be in the responsive and reactive uh, role. So what more do you want, Giolani? I want liberation and freedom. <laughs> All right. I, 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 want, I, want, I want America to lead the nation in the world toward peace instead of exporting violence uh, on our own cities through police brutality and, and through our military strength to cause havoc everywhere else in the world. We value violence over peace. We spend more money toward uh, building nuclear armaments, right? And what does that tell us? That we as Americans have valued violence. And then when violence happens back to us, we claim somehow, you know, this shouldn't happen to us. If you perpetuate violence all over the world, that's going to come perpetuating right back to us. Most of the refugees and immigrants, you know, uh, they're not here because they left their country uh, you know, like myself, I didn't leave Somalia because uh, Somalia was uh, uh, in a better situation. You know, my country was uh, a political football between Russia and the United States during the Cold War. And my country was used as a proxy war because the United States had this little peace deal with Russia, but they could fight Russia in other land. And they did that. And they turned my neighboring uh, Somalia's uh, neighbor, Ethiopia. Um, and in fact, my grandfather was killed shortly after in Somalia due to that for, you know, foreign policy by the United States. And in 1990, our, our central government in Somalia collapsed and I became a refugee. Uh, and I personally believe that if the United States did not create a violent Somalia, we, I would be back in my home today. I would never be a refugee or an immigrant or, right? And many of the thousands of people who died and, right? And so, I want America to be a nation that perpetuates peace all over the world, that shows that peace can work, right? Not to be a nation that creates private militarization and, and, and drone strikes is, is the signature of the American, uh, uh, you know, extension. You know, we don't, and that's, and that's the thing about America. You know, I think for far too long, Americans have looked in the mirror and claimed problems everywhere, but not here in the United States, right? Uh, we, we continue to perpetuate this idea that we are better than everybody else. In fact, it is our tax dollars that killed George Floyd in Minneapolis. It's our tax dollars that send unarmed drones or unmanned drones shooting rockets into some poor neighborhood in somewhere in the world, right? That create a terrorist who then eventually wants to kill people in their own country, right? Most terrorists kill people all over the world. So, 
Sorry, Frank, you asked no, me these open check, blank check questions, you know, and I got off of my high No, horse. I wanted to hear that, man. That, that, that's power, that, that is really powerful, a real macro look at, at, at the world. <laughs> Jelani's gone. Um, there he is. Because no, uh, I, was, I, was, I was going back to my friend uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sympathizer, and his take on being a refugee, a Vietnamese American refugee. And, and of course, the whole Vietnamese American refugee experience, you know, would not have happened if it were not for the, the American war in Vietnam, uh, creating a generation of refugees that America must now contend with and has been contending with for 40 years. Uh, so that, that's a very strong point you're making. I, I, it really, really expands my view. <laughs> Thank you. I think the theme I hear though is, is the necessity to hold the government accountable. Um, going back, I think it was you, Smahan, who was talking about this, but um, we can't be complacent now that there's a Democratic president in the White House, right? Like the things that are happening, that happen under Trump, those mechanisms are still available to any president. And so I fear a little bit that the people who were so fired up during the Trump administration because the horrors were so egregious and so clear right like they you didn't have to search for them for the most part they were presented to you and so i worry that the anger mobilization that happened under the trump presidency will fade under a biden presidency because people feel somehow that because there's a democratic president in the white house we can relax and that's not true right like like jaylani said our tax dollars contributed to the minneapolis police department that killed george floyd and our our votes right like send people to to Washington DC and we can't give up there. We can't say, oh, just because my candidate got elected, I can chill for the next two years or the next four years or the next six years. That's not true. We have to continually hold people accountable because without them, they are not gonna be in DC. Without or without us, they're not gonna be in DC. Without us, they don't have that legislative power. So I think it's really important to not just trust that the government will do the right thing that because the person you elected won they'll do the right thing right like it's not going to happen without us constantly watching the decisions they're making constantly you know letting them know how their decisions affect our communities and this is not you. just yeah. you know and we can't say like oh just write letters to your congressperson and that's the only avenue to make change because it's not right like you vote and you go out in the streets and you take care of your neighbors and you take care of your community. And all of these are, are important and valid ways to make change. But if we just focus on one or two mechanisms, that that's not going to be enough. And so I think, it, you know, like we can't relax. We can't sit back and say, all right, for four years, I don't have to worry about DC. They're gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna focus on myself and my family, right? Like that's not going to make any tangible change. That's just, letting right like that's just giving people a free reign because you're not scrutinizing them anymore. yeah I, I i i'm confident that jcl and care are gonna and, and groups will keep uh, we will be vigilant and and hold government accountable continually i'll, I'll just say that you know given the change administration I, i'm certainly willing to give the give them the benefit of the doubt uh while still holding them accountable and being vigilant and so on i mean i, I just feel a little more more sane and, and, and also i yeah, and also I think Democrats now have don't have excuses. You know, I, I've seen this in, the, in 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 other years where, you know, Democrats have been they have been extremely uh, vocal when they don't have power, but when they do have power, they seem to be moving with a snail pace uh, on important issues. And so, 
that's why I think I think uh, uh, Haruko is mentioning is that not only vigilant, but we really make sure that that pressure is on. And and um, and I think there's a lot of people who are um, tired <laughs> from the four years and want to take a break. But uh, this is the moment to get to the finish line, and uh, we need to do that. At the same time, I think you know um, I think evident of the pressure that we saw in the in the past four years was immediately felt because it wasn't our, I don't think a democratic president has done that before where within the first hours signed an executive order, you know, um, a bunch of executive orders that really, you know, exemplified some of the needs that the community had. I mean, that was impressive to have Biden within the first hour. I mean, I don't even think he was literally sat down and the bills were ready to sign for him to to move on that. I think that's a testament of the victory of the people and the mass mobilization that we saw. Um, and, but, but I, you know, I think there's just too much money in politics uh, and we see that, uh, but we we'll also see too much power that the community can come together. And, and, and Georgia was a great example of that where, you know, for, for far too long, uh, people who've been counted out from voting and taking part into the system when they do vote, when you know you can have a transformative change in places you don't expect, you know, right now Texas is going through a major, major, you know, challenge with what's the weather and that's been happening. Um, but you know, I, and I, I, one thing I do want to make sure, you know, I, I like to project is that this is not a Democrat Republican issue. This is an American issue, and we need to really speak to our other Americans who may vote on the opposite side of the aisle and say, this is an American issue. We are Americans. We need to fight for a better America, an America that is inclusive and welcoming for all people, an America that is stronger when we are all stronger, not an America that only perpetuates violence all over the world, nor an America that rewards corporate greed. You know, uh, and, that's, and that's, I think, a message that many Americans on all the political spectrums believe in. And so I think for far too long, we have we've allowed the dog whistles of politics to divide Americans and to turn one another, uh, you know, uh, the, you know and, and that's the reality we live in. So while we are working to speak to our base, to mobilize them, I think it's essentially important to win the hearts and minds of many Americans and to speak uh, in a volume toward that. Because I think, you know, I, I saw some quotes where all these Republicans are leaving the Republican party. I'm like, no, don't leave the Republican party you know, fix the Republican Party, right? This is still a two-party system, right? We're still going to have Republicans in many places. Don't leave the party. Take back the party. Bring the principles that made the Republican Party what it is. Great to be back. Not a party that endorses hate. Not the party that's going to siege the Capitol, right? <laughs> right? No, we, right? And so I think it's important that we understand that, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, we, there's there's nothing blue or red about us. We're, we're still human beings. We're all human beings. We need each other. And I think COVID reminded us that uh, the world is a one world, one family, and we're all interdependent with each other. And we need to really take that seriously because uh, we see right now as nearly half a million Americans have died and millions across the world have died through this pandemic, that we are all interlocked and it's a one human family and we need to get away from the political divisions that create the type of uh, violence that we see in our communities uh, here and abroad. All right. 
So yeah, very, very powerful words from all of you. Um, it sounds like maybe the, this is a, a natural place to stop. I know it's quite late for those of us in Minnesota. Frank, you in on the West Coast maybe a little earlier, but Jelani, uh, you're, I believe you're in Somalia at the moment. Uh, quite early in the morning for you, you know? <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe it's a good time. Yes, to... three. It's three. It's three in the morning, but it's uh, <laughs> it's nice yeah. and warm, folks. That's all. I, that's all I have to say. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I can't thank you all enough for for uh, taking the time to participate in this discussion. I've really enjoyed it. We still have uh, fifty six people on the call, so I think a lot of people really enjoyed it. Um, and thank you all to those who worked behind the scenes to make this possible, the Twin Cities uh, Education Committee, uh, the Eastside Freedom Library, and everyone else who has contributed. Um, and yeah, with that, I, I think we'll wrap this up. So I'll go ahead and stop broadcasting. And Carla, if you would like to stop the recording.